As David comes forward to read the scripture this morning, notice particularly one word. When Paul wrote this, and you're going to hear a little bit more about Paul in the sermon today, but when Paul wrote this, he was trying to instruct this young protege on the purpose of this book. And he goes into a lot of detail, but there's one word that, why was this written? What is this book? And see if you can find that as David reads this morning. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. So, okay, friends, uh, let's ask, see how you're doing on your Latin this morning. I tested the kids. The sermon title is Sola Scriptura, and that means what? I'm sorry, whatever you're saying is so quiet and insecure that I'm not hearing any of it. Gosh, I've missed you. Only Scripture. Scripture alone. And so that's where we're going to head today. But I'm going to stick a little close, at least at the beginning, to my notes. And this came, as I said, this came out of, remember last April I sent out saying, what... What do you want me to preach on this summer? And scripture came back on four or five of these things, asking a variety of questions around what is this book that we seek to use every Sunday or to follow? And is it true? How was it developed? Where did it come from? How did the final version come to me? All, all of those kinds of things were asked. So I want to deal with this today. But what you're going to hear me do, at least a little bit, is deconstruct some of the mystical nature of it, only to try and then rebuild it back again, maybe on, uh, for some anyway, uh, maybe a more solid foundation. But let me just read what I started uh, with this, um, this sermon. And this is true. This, uh, these words and these descriptions all came out of just uh, a lot of stuff on the web and research around how the Bible is viewed and who reads it. It is the most read book in the world, holds the ongoing record for sales, is one of the most controversial, is one of the most misunderstood. It is one of the few that can be read as, you ready for this? History, prose, fiction, nonfiction, mythology, biography, a period piece as mystery, as mystical, as holy, as confusing, and to some extent, as you see in the sermon title, a chameleon. In other words, it changes depending on where it is. It's been studied by ethnologists, psychologists, numerologists, sociologists, archaeologists, spiritualists, 
theologians, Christologists, scientists, astrologers, astronomers, quantum physicists, and even just regular Joes like you and me. It is seen as credible, incredible, and not credible at all, depending on who you talk to. It is certainly not the longest book, but okay, ready, Sunday school test. How many books in the Bible? Oh, please do not have some pause here. <clears throat> How many books in the Bible? 66. Thank you for that emphatic, wonderful answer, Wilma. Thank God you're teaching Sunday school still. <laughs> 66, but what's so ironic <clears throat> about the number 66? As many of you have been in my classes know, Scripture is filled with numerology. But what is so odd is the number six in Scripture, you know what it always means? Incomplete or imperfect. How ironic is it? And maybe how beautiful is it that there are 66 books in the Bible, which means to get toward perfection or to completeness means it may not be done. And maybe there's something to be heard there. It has transformed, it has healed, it has confused, it has caused death. It's been fought over and even you've been used as a baseball bat upside the head. It's seen as good and it's seen as bad, as the answer and as the opiate. It is seen as the telling of God's story and the telling of the story of humanity. I mean, how many books could be described that way, and, and there's so much more. But what we also have are two very distinctive um, kind of factional sides, and a lot in the middle of these two factional sides. On the one hand, the book is seen as absolutely infallible. There are no mistakes, there is no conflict, there is no confusion. It is to be that book that guides every single thing that you do in your life, and you can't argue with this book because God wrote this book. God used humans to write this book, but God dictated God's words, and they are down in that Bible, and you should never examine them, question them at all. That's one side. The underside is this is a quote from Thomas Paine. As you know, Thomas Paine out of U.S. history he says the book is based on nothing. He was a deist. There is no proof, he says, no history, nothing tangible, and nothing even remotely godly about this book. Marx called the focus of this book a brain-deadening drug, falsely appeasing and comforting people who can't find answers anywhere else. There is every opinion in between on that. But let me keep going here. I need you to know that I hold this book as the most sacred, powerful book in my life. It is the resource to which I turn when I need inspiration or clarity, when I need an answer to prayer, when I need to understand what my role is as a pastor and as a human being, I turn not only to prayer, but I turn to this book. And I find the answers there every single time. So as I unwrap this, I just want that in the back of your head. So let's talk about the Bible. Let's kind of kind of tear it apart a little bit. I don't mean literally. First, 
please let's understand that the Bible is not consistent. The Bible is filled with disagreements. All you have to do is, if you have a Bible in front of you, all you need to do right now is turn to, the, to, to Genesis. And if you look in Genesis, those first three chapters, guess what you find? Three, three, very distinctive understandings of creation. The story is told in three very distinctive ways. Only one deals with the finger pointing that we see of Eve eating the fruit and then pointing at Adam, who then points at the serpent. But even that is a story of creation. But let's not stop there. Next Sunday school question. What are the three books of law in the Old Testament? Thank you. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. If you were to look at those three books, and by the way, they were written by three very distinctive populations to point to what the law really is supposed to be. Guess what? They disagree with each other. If you look at this, what you're going to find are two and really three very distinctive interpretations of the Ten Commandments. They don't agree. It's amazing how powerful it is that they don't agree. And this is where Jesus, in all his wisdom, when he is approached by one of those Pharisees, lawyers, who said, okay, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Remember what he quoted? He quoted first Deuteronomy, one set of laws, and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Good. But let me now tell you the second, which is like it. Didn't say it's the same, it's like it. Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The reason that they were so profoundly impressed with this and couldn't respond to it back then was because he took two very distinctive sets of laws and was able in his own incredibly wise way and combined them into one. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? How many Gospels do we have? We have four. Do they all disagree? Or do they all agree? No. You, I, I mean, if, we were, if I were to come over here, and we have the Romanian section now over here, right? And so, so let's just say these guys have one interpretation of what the Gospel really says. What, what was the message of Jesus? And we'll call that Mark. Mark's interpretation, which was the first one written, of the Gospels. Well, then two followed pretty closely on the heels of that. And by the way, there is another Gospel that was kind of written, but it will be sitting outside right now, which I'll come back to in a second, which is, was Mark's source, called Q. But then you have one interpretation that is much more Jewish, who really wanted to see Jesus as the Messiah. And by the way, we're going to spend a year this year uh, every Sunday morning looking at this, and my Bible study this year is going to be dependent on this, you guys are the Matthew group. A certain understanding of what the purpose of Jesus was in his coming and how he taught. And at the root of you is Matthew 5-7, through which is the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly beginning with the Beatitudes. You want to know how we're supposed to live? Look there. If you want to know what they thought was the center, what Mark thought was the center... It was the transfiguration right at the center of the gospel. But then we have the storytelling group. And somehow I'm looking at this group thinking this is the right place for the storytelling group. Because you guys have stories. You love your stories and you tell them exceptionally well. You're the Luke group. 
You're also the most highly educated. You're the smartest. Okay, John, good. John's, got, John gets, John's giving me a thumbs up over here. So, yeah. And, and so you're approaching this so that almost everybody would understand what this story is about. But you're not Matthew and you're not Mark, but then there's the other group. <laughs> what do we do with you? Because you all, you five, you are the mystics. You are the deep, deep thinkers. You are the deep thinkers. But you interpret this thing completely differently than anybody else. You wrote yours in about 45 or 50 A.D. Yours came after that somewhere 66 to 70. Yours came about 96 to 100 A.D. or C.E. Completely different interpretations for completely different populations. And guess what? They don't always agree. And if that wasn't enough... Those that were in my Revelation class remember what John of Potmos, the author of Revelation, called Paul the Apostle. You ready? By the way, this is in the Bible. John of Potmos called Paul the Apostle the Antichrist. You think they agreed? (laughs) I guess not. They didn't. Matter of fact, they profoundly disagreed with each other profoundly disagreed. And yet, all of this is in the same book that we seek to study. So, how did it get developed then? Well, to get there, let me just go one more small piece of history to also remember that that the Bible in what we have now wasn't developed until the 5th century. What in the world happened over those 400 years? Guess what? Nobody cared about putting one book together. Everybody was able and open to kind of having their interpretation of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And they were looking at a wide, hundreds of different resources on different interpretations of the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter. My favorite, my favorite, I mean, overall, even including the biblical Gospels, is called the Didache. And it's this beautiful, poetic, gorgeous writing about what the gospel or what it means to be followers of Jesus. But then came this time where a pagan emperor named Constantine decided it was time to stop the bickering about what all this was going to be. And he funded this group, this gathering, this council that got together at Nicaea. And out of that, days and days and weeks and weeks of bickering and arguing about what should be holy and what should be rejected, and that's where our Bible came from. Isn't that interesting? Funded by a pagan emperor. Ouch. So, you still want to read it? Well, I hope so. Because in the midst of all of that are some amazingly powerful things. Let me just go through a few of those. First, I believe the Bible is up to that kind of scrutiny. And I think it's in the diversity that we search and find the truths that are there. But the answers that we find in the Bible cannot be seen as simple. And I think it is in the arguing with each other 
that a truth will ultimately emerge. The challenge is that what so many of us do is we don't look at the Bible in its entirety, nor do we even look at the Gospels in their entirety. What we have a tendency to do is we pick and choose those specific pieces that make us, you know, kind of undergirding uh, of of what we want to believe, and then we ignore the rest of it. We choose one verse or two verses that say, okay, um, this is wrong and this is right, and this is where I see it in this one verse, failing to see the rest of the story. The Bible is up to that kind of scrutiny, and if we look at it in its entirety, particularly as we look at the Gospels, which I'll talk about in just a sec, what we're going to find are deep, deep truths for life. Second, we need to recognize that this book is really our own biography. It is our own biography, particularly as our human stories relate to each other and to the power and this incredible power beyond ourselves. What I love about this book And what I can't stand about this book is that it is so deeply honest. It is so deeply honest about where we fail. And not only where do we fail God, but where do we fail each other. We see the best elements of leadership in this book, and we see the worst elements of leadership. And we better grow and understand both, or we will continue to fail. It is a powerful book about our own our own lives, what it means to be human. Third, the book helps us appropriately. If we examine it carefully, we will find, and I think it's a gift of God, the right path. Fourth, I love what Paul says to Timothy. In what David read, he said, it's inspired by God. The the more accurate interpretation, the more accurate uh, translation says, it is basically the breath of God. It is the ruach the breath of God that continues to create. And if we study it, that breath will be able to come live in and through us. But it takes time, and if it takes, it takes effort. Fifth, the book, at least for Christians, is centered its entirety on the life and teachings of one one person. One very consistent person, that is Jesus. Sixth, Beyond Jesus, the book is the story of a power that simply cannot be ignored. I think one of the places where, where we struggle, at least I do, is that in that time, God was seen as a human-like figure with hands and feet, with eyes and a mouth. I will tell you, I do not see God that way at all. I see God as a power that is in and moving through the entirety of the universe. And what we do through this Bible and through our times with each other and through prayer is we are able to enter into the flow of that power if we open ourselves to it. And the Bible helps us, particularly as we see Jesus as the absolute perfect embodiment of that power. And that's why I am a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus was that perfect embodiment of that power but we too can be an embodiment of that power let me close with this thought as we prepare for communion this was my first Seattle to Portland ride I had not ever done this before and I'd ridden as you all know a lot and I won't continually use Seattle to Portland or STP metaphors This one is perfect for today, and it's why I did what I did with the kids. 
you know, the ride is hard. But I want you to imagine for just a moment riding with 11,500 people and the challenges that would be inherent in taking a ride even of 200 miles with 11,500 people. There were very few spots where you were alone on the road. And by alone, I mean nobody within 100 feet. It's an amazing ride. But what you learn quickly as a rookie and the rider is that there's an etiquette to riding, of cycling. You don't see it in the, uh, in the Tour de France because that's a race. This was not a race. This was an event. But what you quickly realize is that as you are coming behind anyone who understands the etiquette, is suddenly what you realize is what they're doing is as you're riding, you look ahead, you're making sure that you're engaged with the group or person ahead of you because what they will do is invariably point to the ground. And as you ride by there, you too point to the ground because that's a grate that can take a tire. That's a pothole that will throw you off your bike. That's a danger place as that pointing happens. When you come to railroad tracks, which are a terribly difficult thing for tires that are this wide, when you hit a railroad track, if you don't hit it exactly right, you will get caught into that track and be thrown. You have a signal, and it's this, for the riders that are coming behind you, and that is that railroad tracks are coming, be cautious. You verbally say, slowing, the worst accident that I saw there, and I saw a few, was when a young woman in the midst of a group, um, as we were going through one of the towns, looked down and did not notice that the light in front of her had turned red. And no one in that group said to her slowing or stopping. And you say this very loudly, no matter where you are, as well as saying, moving ahead. She looked down, she slammed into the persons in front of her, was thrown from her bike. She was not in clipless pedals, which means she wasn't attached to her bike. She was, I watched her go into the air. Her bike went this way into the road. She was thrown onto the curb. But what happened was immediately every rider in that group, and there are probably 50 riders in that group, pulled to the side of the road, jumped off their bikes, cradled her head so that it wouldn't move, surrounded her so that no one would run over her or step on her. There were those with compassion that just kept comforting her and comforting her other riders around her. And within a minute or two, and this happened consistently on this ride, medical personnel were there. And they then took over and took care of her, and the other riders moved on. With a higher awareness of what to do and what not to do. Friends, that's this book. This book are those who have gone before us and are pointing to say, here's the pitfall. Here's the danger. Avoid it and here's how. Here's how we communicate with each other. Here's what this means. And I'll talk about that in a second. Here's how we are to be community. Here's how we cradle each other in the midst of struggles and difficulties and even physical challenges. Here's how we do it. Here's how we're to live our lives if we're to look at Jesus. Here's how we're to live our lives in a way that will absolutely positively transform and create health in the lives of anyone around us. This book is that roadmap. 
but you can't open it and point to a scripture and say, this is, this is my message. You have to look at it in its entirety. Or you will miss the most important parts. I love being in a church where we can question everything. I love being in a place where we are filled with electronic geeks who will question everything. Because that's where the power is of this book as well. It's up to the scrutiny. And out of it, incredible, miraculous truths for life. And it's a privilege to be on this ride with you. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for this book. I thank you that it's not easy to understand. I thank you that we journey together so that we might see what it is that you have for us. I appreciate our founder, John Wesley, who said this is, it is about Scripture alone, but we have to engage it with tradition and experience and reason. I thank you that we are in a church that does all of that. I thank you for the controversies, for the arguments. I don't thank you, and I pray that we can overcome those places where we want to tear each other apart out of disagreement. Because if anything else, what this book does is helps us understand that our disagreements help us sharpen each other and find power in each other. Guide us in this time. All this we ask in the name of the one we truly do seek to follow, Jesus Christ. Amen.